Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. All right, on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I reconnect with Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences, and we talk about this, I guess a policy is probably a good word from FDA, about the long-awaited intended use rule, and we'll provide a few links to the FDA Federal Register and you know some of the articles that support or discuss this a little bit more in depth to support the conversation that Mike and I have. But just to give you a little bit about this, and I'm reading from the summary from the Federal Register, FDA is issuing a final rule to amend its medical product intended use regulations. This final rule amends FDA's regulations describing the types of evidence relevant to determine whether a product is intended for use as a drug or device under the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, the Public Health Service Act, and FDA's implementing regulations, including whether a medical product is that is approved, cleared, granted marketing authorization, or exempted from pre-market notification is intended for a new use. But anyway, I don't, I don't want to continue to spoil the fun that you're about to have on listening to this, but Mike and I do talk a little bit about indications for use versus intended use, as well as this term manufacturer's objective intent. So we really unpack this and the role that labeling plays in this new rule. So I hope you do enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And joining me is familiar voice and hopefully by now familiar face on the Global Medical Device Podcast is Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. So Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. So this one's interesting to me. There's some recent news that was posted. I think I saw it on RAP website. I think it's probably in a few other places, but we'll provide links to those. But the gist is FDA finalizes the long-awaited intended use rule. And I'm not going to lie, the first reaction I had was I started scratching my head. I'm like, why do we need a new rule about intended <laughs> use? I don't know if that's a great place to start, but we're going to unpack this whole topic here today. But maybe we can leave it as a rhetorical question unless you have a reaction to that initially. Well, I think, John, we should build up to that. Okay, fair enough. All right, so maybe a good place to start. I mean, intended use. What do we mean by labeling? You know, when we unpack this document information about this, it talks about high level versus low level labeling and things of that nature. But what do we mean by that when we talk about labeling? Yeah, great question, John. And on the surface, labeling seems like simple, straightforward topic. And I want to start by just reviewing a couple of basic points first. But for the benefit of the audience that does understand something about labeling, I don't want anybody to just kind of tune out now because they think this is just labeling 101 because this is going to get very complicated very quickly. And quite frankly, when we get to steps like, for example, manufacturer's objective intent, most people have never even heard of that phrase, let alone understand what it means. So we're going to get there. We are going to unpack this as we go. So let's start out with the basics and then we'll dig deeper. So when we refer to labeling, at least when I refer to it, I'm not talking about this sticky piece of paper that we stick on a package or on a box that a medical device comes in, nor am I talking about the graphics that go onto that label. Those are all important aspects of labeling, but that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here, John, is the content of the label. In other words, the words that we use, the claims that we make. And when it comes to labeling, I break the labeling universe into two parts, what I call high-level labeling and low-level labeling. Now, to be fair, John, these are not FDA-isms. These are Mike Cruz-isms. High-level labeling means that is the most important part. That's the intended use, the indications 
evidence for use, the label claims, and so on. That's what I mean by the high-level labeling, as opposed to the low-level label. That would include things like the directions for use or what some people call the instructions for use. And by the way, John, I really don't like to use the phrase instructions for use, even though many people, including FDA, uses that phrase. Why? Because the acronym instructions for use, IFU, gets very confusing with indications for use. Right. And so then I prefer to call it directions for use, DFU, as opposed to instructions for use, IFU. So the low-level labeling would be the directions for use, the package inserts, and so on and so on. And if I may, John, I'll share with you a quick story from one of my pre-sub experiences. Sure. I used the phrase low-level and high-level labeling in an FDA pre-sub. One of the FDA reviewers was not familiar with that because, like I said, these are mitrusisms. These are not FDA-isms. So he asked me, what do you mean by that? And before I could even answer, one of the other reviewers in the room, oh, by the way, happened to be a former graduate student of mine, <laughs> explained what high-level and low-level labeling go. meant. Me and he kind of smiled. <laughs> and so sometimes it's a bit of an advantage, actually, to have a former grad student of mine who now works at the FDA. And I guess I'm getting old, John, because I have a number of former yeah. graduate students who now work at the FDA. But does that make sense in terms of yeah. labeling and high-level and low-level labeling? Yeah, and I guess it had to feel a little bit good that something you taught stuck with that person so that they could explain <laughs> it. So that's encouraging. Indeed. Yeah, I want to echo, I guess, disclaimer, the statement you made when you first started talking about labeling, I do think a lot of times people hear this and they tune out. Like, ah, it's just a label. Why is this a big deal? Well, there have been numerous and continues to be uh, numerous warning letters, recalls, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, strictly related to content or lack thereof or misinformation that's on labeling, whether that be the high level or low level labeling. But yeah, it totally makes sense. And I guess to kind of talk a little bit more, distinguish a little bit more between high level and low level. Do you think you can use high level versus low level labeling as some sort of strategic competitive advantage? I mean, are there ways to leverage information that's on either the high level and or the low level labeling to minimize or streamline some of the regulatory impact? Absolutely, John. It's a great question. And in fact, I do it all the time. One of the big reasons why I do it is because it will minimize regulatory burden. And before we talk about how we can use high versus low level labeling as a strategic advantage, regulatory burden are these phrases that I use a lot, but not everybody really understands what it means. Obviously, John, you're a pretty savvy guy. If I can put you on the spot a little bit here, what do you think regulatory burden, at least what does it mean to you? Well, I mean, to me, it implies that the words that I choose or the words that I choose not to use, especially when it comes to what I'm claiming regarding my product features, aspects, details, indications for use, et cetera, et cetera, that that becomes very important. And, you know, sometimes the difference between word A and the word the might make a big difference in the eyes of a regulator. So I want to be very intentional about the use of the words, the symbols, all the details that I put in that, because if I choose one set of words or path, then it could be perceived completely differently in the eyes of regulatory bodies such as FDA versus if I use something, some other choices. Yeah, I think, John, that's a good start. I think I would have 
ostensibly agree with what you said. Let me offer a slightly different spin on the concept of regulatory burden. Sure. To me, regulatory burden simply means how much work do we have to do in terms of either benchtop testing, animal testing, clinical testing, literature evidence, and so on. How much work do we have to do in our product through the FDA and onto the market? And in this particular case, specifically, how much work, how much evidence do we need to support our labeling claims? Well, the answer to that question, John, is it kind of depends where we put our claim. Remember, as we talked about at the beginning, labeling is a broad universe. We have high-level labeling. We have low-level labeling. Simply put, if we put a claim in the high-level labeling, in the intended use or the, the regulatory burden, that is the amount of effort or work or data that we're going to support that claim is going to be very, very high. On the other hand, if we put exactly the same claim in our lower-level label, for example, the directions for use or the device description or something like that, then it's going to have a much lower regulatory burden. In other words, much less evidence will be necessary to exactly the same claim. It's a strategy that I use frequently to minimize my regulatory burden. As a matter of fact, I'll share with you another recent pre-sub example, John. We went to the FDA with a pre-sub, this was just about two months ago, where I didn't feel that the company had enough evidence to support a particular claim in the high-level labeling. So instead, I suggested that we put it in the low-level labeling because we've got a pre-sub coming up. Let's float this idea at FDA to make sure that they're okay with that. And long story short, John, FDA came back and said, yeah, absolutely. We have absolutely no problem with you putting this claim right. in your low-level labeling as long as you have the evidence, not necessarily direct evidence because we were just using literature evidence, not right. new or direct evidence to support it. Interesting. So it is a claim is a claim is a claim. Whether we put it in our high-level labeling or our low level labeling, we can still advertise for it. But there is a caveat, and that is we have to be a little bit careful how we advertise a claim that is low level labeling, but not in our high level label. Mm -hmm. And that's perhaps a topic of a different discussion. <laughs> but bottom line is we can advertise claims regardless of what they are, where they are, but we have to do it differently. We have to be very careful about advertising claims that are not in our sure. intended use or our indications for use. Sure. Does that I mean, make sense, John? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you know, we've sort of talked loosely about this, you know, I guess as an idea or philosophy, but there's a lot of art in regulatory. And to me, what you just described is some of the artistic skills that you apply to high level and low level labeling. But you did mention well, John, something. I'm very flattered. I think you're referring to me as an artist. A scientist <laughs> and an artist. I mean, is that even possible? That means you're using both the left brain and the right brain, I, th I think, right? So, <laughs> but yes, you're welcome. I would like to think so. No, you mentioned this a couple of times in the last explanation. And if if memory serves, I think it is also the topic of one of the very early conversations that you and I did on the Global Medical Device Podcast. But let's talk about it. Remind folks, indications for use, intended use, what's the difference? How are they the same? So go. Yeah, great question, John. And there's a tremendous amount of confusion about this, yeah. not just in industry, but is at, at FDA as well. As a matter of fact, you mentioned one of our early podcasts that we did about labeling. I think we've talked about labeling off and on a number of times over the years. One of the webinars that I did on this particular topic is actually now posted on CDRH's internal website for their reviewers to watch because there's so much confusion about the difference between intended use and indications for use. There's a lot of people, including 
at FDA who think they understand the difference, but they really don't. As a matter of fact, I've seen submissions that have gone through the FDA, 510Ks and PMAs and so on, where the labeling is flat out wrong. And I point out to the agency that it's wrong and they say, yes, Mike, we agree with you, but we can't change it. That's our U.S. government hard at work. I'm sorry to say it, but it's true. All right. So back to your original question. What's the difference between intended use and indications for use? It's really not nearly as complicated as a lot of people think. Intended use, the focus is on the product or on the device itself. In other words, what does the device do? How does it work? What's its mechanism? So on and so on. So intended use is all about the device, whereas indications for use, the focus is on the patient. What uh, illness, injury, or disease, or condition does the device, is it intended to prevent, diagnose, or treat? So let me just repeat that one more time. Intended use, the focus is on the device. What does it do? How does it work? Its mechanism of action. Indications for use is on the patient. What condition, illness, or injury is the device? intended to prevent, diagnose, or treat. Now, unfortunately, John, there's a lot of inconsistencies across CDRA. In other words, in some cases, you'll see in submissions where the intended use and the indications for use are separate and defined as I just did. Other cases, they use what I call a blended intended use indications for use statement, where it's all kind of mushed together in one piece. Unfortunately, in spite of what some of the politicians at FDA will have you believe when they say everybody's following the same rules the same way. It's just absolutely not true. Yeah. And anybody believes that is just naive because the labeling is just one of many examples of that. So my best advice, and I say this to companies all the time, whatever part of FDA that you're working in, without whatever part of CDRH that you're working in, depending on if it's cardiology or urology or gastroenterology or whatever it is, take a look at the submissions that have come through recently in that area and see if they prefer separate intended use and indications for use statement, which is my personal preference, or do they prefer a, a blended intended use indications for use statement? I'm happy to do either one, but make sure that you get in agreement with them. And if you're going to do a pre-sub, you know, John, I'm a big fan of the pre-sub process. Right. Bring this up in the pre-sub as well. Right. Make sense? Yeah. So like on that last point, I mean, do your homework, uh, understand how other similar type products have been addressed or handled or viewed from a regulatory perspective. You know, it sounds like certainly something you want to discover or uncover during the conversation, the pre-sub as to how, you know, this particular product would be reviewed and what the FDA's desire expectation, because, you know, it seems silly at times, I suppose, but those words do matter and how it's viewed is going to matter from the perspective of FDA. And I've seen a lot of submissions, you know, at the late stages of when you're waiting for that clearance letter and there's this back and forth, back and forth on, you know, wordsmithing and things like that. And then it's just get that answered earlier, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So let's get on to this long-awaited intended use rule and why it is so important to medical device manufacturers. You know, for example, is labeling simply limited to what I'm going to say and put on my label? And I guess the other part of this, a little tongue-in-cheek, is this really a long awaited intended use rule that we've been waiting on. So there's a lot packed in that question. Well, now we're really going to start to get into the meat of this discussion, John, because unlike a lot of people believe, labeling is absolutely not, underline not, limited to what you say or what you 
print on your labeling. Labeling goes well beyond that. And by the way, this is not unique to medical devices. This is equally applicable to drugs and biologics as well. And as we get into the details of this, John, you know, as an engineer, we like to think in terms of root cause. Well, what's the reason why this intended use rule, so to speak, has been under such discussion and debate? Actually, it goes back to at least 2015, if not before. But the root cause is that, you know, a lot of myself included have gotten quite clever in our wordsmithing. And that is we say or we claim one thing, but we infer or we imply another thing. Let me say that one more time, because this is a little bit of a cat and mouse game, mm-hmm. you know, to be honest with you, you know, industry versus FDA. Industry, you know, and I spend some of my time designing labels. I don't mean in the graphical sense, but I mean in the wordsmithing sense. We say or we claim one thing, but we infer or imply something else. So for example, and I'm going to purposely use some non-medical device examples. If you remember, John, years ago when we were in college, there used to be a soft drink on the market called Jolt Cola that used to advertise all the sugar and twice the caffeine. They didn't make the claim that the caffeine would make you stay awake because if they made that claim, they would have to prove it. So instead of listing it as what I call a stated claim, they used it as an inferred or an implied claim because everybody knows that caffeine does exactly that. Similar example, there was a product on the market a few years ago called Lazy Cakes, which was basically a brownie that had melatonin in it. And they actually got smacked by the FDA for making certain claims, but they were also taking advantage of an inferred or an implied claim that melatonin would help you relax, would help you go to sleep. That's why they called it lazy cakes. And by the way, I've come to appreciate this is a very subtle but very powerful regulatory strategy, John. If you include in the name of your product what you want to advertise without including it as a formal name, that's a very clever way of getting that into the minds of your customers because FDA does not regulate, at least not yet, the names of medical devices. So you can embed a claim in the name of your device without it being subject, at least directly, to FDA regulation. Interesting. So anyway, that's a start. Happy to dig deeper, but let me pause and see if that much makes sense. Yeah, so far I'm tracking with you for sure. So do we want to continue to dive a little bit deeper on this long-awaited intended use rule? Or should we maybe dive into more of, you know, what does this mean from a manufacturer's perspective? And I guess specifically, I'm using quotes here. I believe this comes from some of the literature about this manufacturer's objective intent. What does that mean? Yeah, great question. And I love this phrase, John. This is a, this starting to get into now is quite frankly, one of the reasons why I love to work in regulatory, because this is the epitome of the fuzziness of the gray area. You know, so many people think that regulatory is just black or white. If it was, it would be boring. And quite frankly, I would never be working in it because I get bored when things are black or white, true or false, right or wrong. You know, there's an infinite number of shades of gray. And now we're getting into those infinite numbers of shades of gray. So as I mentioned a moment ago, John, this debate, you know, goes back to at least 2015 that I know of, I suspect probably earlier than that. And back in those around that time, FDA introduced this new phrase called manufacturer's objective intent. What the heck does that mean? 
Manufacturer's objective intent basically means that if a manufacturer knows or has knowledge of the facts that would give him device or the drug company knowledge that the product would be used for conditions or purposes other than what is being advertised for, in other words, claimed, then the manufacturer may be required to provide adequate labeling for that particular drug or medical device in order to support those claims. So this is what I meant a moment ago, John, when I said the labeling goes well beyond what literally say on your label. And then, you know, this went back and forth between FDA and Congress and industry several times. They modified this in the next generation. And we can provide references. I know there's a lot of words that probably is difficult for the audience that are just listening or watching, but we can provide references. It was modified. Uh, FDA came out and said, and I love that legal phrase, John. I use it all the time. The totality of the evidence establishes that a manufacturer objectively intends that the medical device introduced into interstate commerce, in other words, put onto the market, is to be used for conditions, purposes, or uses other than the ones for which it has been approved or cleared or granted market authorization, then they will likely need to for such drug evidence, you know, to support that those other intended uses. So bottom line, the manufacturer is not limited to just simply what they say on the label. In other words, what I referred to earlier as the stated label claim, but they could also be held responsible to support or inferred or implied label claim. Fast forward to today, John, in 2021, the new language is now coming from FDA. And this is after they took all of the suggestions from industry. And it's interesting to note, John, that FDA actually dismissed or did not follow a lot of the suggestions that were provided by industry. So fast forward to 2021, this new rule, so to speak. Basically, FDA is now saying that medical device companies would not be regarded as pending an unapproved new use of an approved or cleared medical device based solely, and I think that the interesting word here is solely, on the firm's knowledge that such a device was being prescribed or used by healthcare providers for uses other than what's on the label itself. In other words, knowledge of an unapproved use would not by itself trigger obligations. And one last thing I'll go on to mention, John, and I know there's a lot to digest here, so we can talk about this a little bit. FDA says that while they agree that laws must give a person of ordinary intelligence, that's the way the lawyers write this, a person of ordinary intelligence, a reasonable opportunity to know what is prohibited, FDA went on to say that meticulous specificity, that's the phrase they use here, is not required. You're probably familiar with the phrase that FDA uses a lot, John, enforcement discretion. Yeah. This clearly opens the door or keeps the door wide open for enforcement discretion. So let me try to summarize what I just went through, John, and then we can discuss it because I know this is not nearly as simple or straightforward as a lot of people think. Simply put, a manufacturer is not limited to supporting what is stated on their label in black and white. The manufacturer may also be required to support claims that are inferred or implied, especially if the manufacturer has knowledge that the particular device is going to likely be used for those things anyway. In other words, in the past, John, many people, myself included, would argue that that is clearly off-label use and it is beyond FDA's authority to require a company to support an off-label use of their product. But this new 
if it is a new policy, if you will, really brings that whole discussion of label claims and off-label use into question. Yeah. I know I went through an awful lot, John. I'm yeah. sure it's probably about as clear as mud. What questions do you have? How can I kind of clarify this? Yeah. So definitely uh, lots of shades of gray in uh, what you just described. And you and I have talked about this example in the past, but as you were describing some of the nuances, I was reminded from many years ago in my career, a lot of companies who were developing stents and you know a stent for those listening that may not know is more or less a mesh metal tube that has a few different indications or, or possibilities for indications throughout the human body one of the most notable use cases for a stent is in coronary arteries to open up stenosed arteries and you know once upon a time the loophole i think that a lot of companies pursued with those stents was oh let's bring it to market under a biliary duct claim completely different part of the body and i suspect this is speculation but i suspect full well knowing that it was going to be used in a coronary application so i'm sorry john there was a little static on the line i didn't hear what you just quite what, what you just said and please do not repeat it <laughs> i mean i have no evidence that one way or the other but i mean it was awful purely hypothetical Purely hypothetical. But it was suspicious <laughs> that once upon a time, I think there were more biliary stents cleared than there were actual biliary procedures done annually that required stenting. But, you know, this seems to be that is maybe an extreme example. And I, to remove some of the suspense, uh, those loopholes have been addressed. And I think that this is, you know, yet a progression of that, what you just described about the objective intent. I mean, that's a clear case where a company knows, they know that it's being used and they have a responsibility or an obligation to address that. I think you're spot on correctly. Yeah. And I'm so glad you brought up that particular example, because let's use that as an example to illustrate how things were different then and now. Okay. So plus years ago, and you know, you may remember, John, when I started out in this business as an R&D engineer almost 30 years ago now, I actually designed stents, among other things. Yeah. So this is an area near and dear to my heart, pardon the pun. Okay. So 20 or 30 years ago, if we went to the FDA, as you just suggested, with a biliary stent that was indicated for biliary use. And FDA said, well, what if somebody put this in a coronary artery instead? From a regulatory perspective, I could very easily push back on that. And I was guaranteed 100% to win and simply saying, you know what? If a physician chooses to put this in the body in some place other than a coronary artery, they can certainly do that. It's a practice FDA of medicine. Does not yeah. It's the practice of medicine. That's exactly right. And FDA doesn't regulate the practice of medicine, the manufacturer, you know, control how the device is to be used and so on. So it'd be very easy to push back. But now with this quote unquote new policies to try to, as I said at the beginning, John, to FDA's credit, to try to get control of this bit of a cat and mouse game, FDA does have now more statutory authority, more ammunition right. to push back on the manufacturer and say, you know what, you're right. It's not in your your labeling. However, if you know, or you should have known, as the lawyers like to call it, that people might be using it, or people will likely be using it in this particular off-label use, then we have the right, we have the responsibility, some might say, to ask for data to support that. 
Right. And so that's the subtle difference, maybe not so subtle difference between then it would be a very easy argument to win regulatorily speaking versus today, I think decent chance of winning the argument, but not nearly as easily. And I think now as more products are going to come onto the market, I think this is going to continue to go back and forth with the courts. So I guess time will tell on all of this. Yeah. Do you think it's worth going through maybe another example to illustrate this or should we? I think John, maybe we can wrap this up by talking about just a brief couple of other aspects of this discussion of labeling that are important. There's two that I wanted to just bring up in particular. The first one is thinking beyond regulatory terms from what are the product liability implications of your device being used for purposes other than what's on your label. You know, in the past, we would call that off-label use, but now we have this phrase, manufacturer's objective intent. Well, ability perspective, and I think we've talked about this a little bit before, John, there's nothing new here because, and as you know, I spend some of my time working as an expert witness in medical device product liability cases exactly like this. I'm not limited to uses that are directly stated on the FDA cleared or approved label. If I can show that the manufacturer knew or should have known, or as my attorney friends like to say, we're thinking about these other uses of this device, regardless of if it's on the label or not and something bad happens to the patient as a result of that use, then John, I hope it doesn't take a JD from Harvard Law after your name to appreciate, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. This is exactly the concept of manufacturer's objective intent as we're talking about here. So the product liability implications are important. Go ahead, John, I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna say it, going back to my comment about there's art to this and you have often stated it's not the regulatory body that I should be afraid of or worry so much about. Of course, that's important, but I need to think about it more from a litigation perspective. I mean, it's product liability. This can be, like you said, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. So I need to Absolutely. I run into a lot of people. I run into a lot of people who think that if they don't list a particular indication on their FDA cleared or approved label and somebody uses their device for that indication and they're harmed, the patient is harmed and the sued, that all they have to say is, sorry, it's not on my label, end of discussion. Well, for better or worse, John, at least here in the United States, the legal system is not nearly so simple. So there are implications. The other thing that I wanted to bring up very quickly, John, beyond regulatory is the reimbursement implications. Because simply put, and you and I did a recent podcast where we took a deeper dive into reimbursement. It's another very important and very complicated topic. But simply put, if you want reimbursement on something, you need to state that on your label. In other words, as you know, John, I work as a consultant for the FDA, usually work as a consultant for CMS, for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Simply put, CMS is not going to reimburse you for an inferred or implied In other words, if you want to get reimbursement, you've got to state it on your label. This is why when we design our label, and one of my most popular webinars is one called Design Your Label Like You Design Your Device. Yes. And I don't mean in the graphical sense, John, I mean in the wordsmithing sense. We have to balance regulatory concerns with product liability concerns, with reimbursement. You know, many of these things can be diametrically opposed to one another. So bottom line, there's a lot more to this whole discussion of labeling than just 
the regulatory implication. Yeah, it's I just want to highlight that to folks. I mean, because I think reimbursement is another one of those things that is often forgotten or certainly put off until very, very late in the game. And at least in the United States, generally speaking, if you want to get paid for your product, that means the person using the product, you know, generally speaking, not 100%, needs to have some sort of means to get reimbursed for using your product. So that's why that reimbursement component is so important. So that to me, it's not the only, but that's another reason why this content, this policy that's being proposed, that's a pretty important aspect because I know, of course, everyone listening wants to improve the quality of life. But you also want to run a good business that generates income so you can continue to make product improvements and additional products too. Are you suggesting, John, that the medical device companies out there and the people in them, this business not simply for altruistic reasons? <laughs> Mike, I hope there's an element of altruism, but you are running a business. You're trying to, I mean, I always enjoyed, I'll dodge the question, hopefully elegantly. It was a rhetorical question. John. It's rhetorical, but... <laughs> You know, as a product development engineer, I want to work on new product development devices. So, you know, but if our company isn't getting revenue, then things like R&D budgets might be cut. And so that removes some of the opportunity that I get to work on new and exciting things. So it's okay to make money. It's okay to help people at the same time. There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. All right. Anything else that you think is important that we should leave folks with regarding this long awaited intended use rule before we wrap things up today? Yeah. So just a few takeaways. We went through a lot and some of this is pretty complicated, but just a few high level takeaways I want to remind our audience. First of all, please don't be so naive as to think that your labeling is simply limited to what you say on your sticky piece of paper that goes on your back. Labeling is a heck of a lot more than that. And it's a heck of a lot more than just wordsmithing, because as we just talked about, especially in the second half, John, it's not just what you say, but what you have knowledge of. So Make sure that you know what all of your options are. Make sure that you can identify the advantages and disadvantages of each and every one of those options. And if that's not your area of expertise, that's fine. None of us can know everything. Make sure that you get somebody on your team like John or like myself or somebody that quite frankly knows what the heck they're doing to help you, to advise you on this. Keep in mind, John, this drives me crazy about so many regulatory professionals. Let's be honest. In many organizations, regulatory is viewed as the police because yeah. They're constantly telling R&D or manufacturing or other places what they cannot do. And I'm sorry, I do not take that approach. I say you can do whatever you want. Specifically, when it comes to labeling, you can say or you can claim whatever you want as long as you can prove it as long as you can support it. So if you want to claim that your new medical device cures cancer or regrows missing limbs, then terrific. I say, go for it. But before you start saying that, the first thing that you got to do is you got to prove it to me as a biomedical engineer that your technology can do those things. Yeah, absolutely. Just two other things to wrap up, John. And then if there's anything else that you think is important, feel free to add it to the list. Don't just focus on what you say in your label. Also consider what you don't say and how you don't say it. In other words, it's not just what you say that matters. It's what people hear. I'll say that one more time. It's not what you say that matters. It's what people hear. This is a skill that many politicians are very, very good at. And this is also a skill that good regulatory professionals, I'm not talking about average regulatory professionals, good regulatory professionals are also very, very good taking advantage of not what you say that matters, but what people hear. 
Mm -hmm. I hope, John, the audience really appreciates the power of those messages because we're definitely in the gray area. There's nothing that we've talked about here today that's black and white. And the question is, how do we use that gray area, that vagueness, that ambiguity to our advantage? That's what this discussion hopefully was all about. Anything that you would add? To As usual, you're thorough and complete on these types of topics. I think I just would remind or reiterate to folks that there is art here. I've mentioned it a couple of times and, you know, labeling should not be treated as a cookie cutter approach. Just because you've done it this way for similar products in the past does not necessarily mean that that's the best way or the way that you should continue to move forward. I think it's a great opportunity to learn and to maybe adapt and revise your approach because there could be some advantages to doing so. There could also be some disadvantages to continuing to do the same thing over and over the same old way. So as Mike mentioned, he is extremely knowledgeable in designing labels. And again, that's not just laying out the different symbols. It's about the wordsmithing components and about architecting your high level and low level labeling in a way that makes the most sense for what you want to do with your product and what you want to claim and, and all those sorts of things that are important to your medical device. So Mike Drew is the vascular sciences as per usual, he's provided a wealth of knowledge and information on a very important topic that we should be paying attention to. And I want to thank him for his contributions today. So thank you, Mike, for that. And as always, this is your host and founder at GreenLake Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.